Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we take a look at the world of epigenetics, finding out if more than DNA passes on to the next generation, whether Darwin was wrong and Lamarck was right, and how to pimp your genome. Before we start, another quick plug for my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, exploring what we've learned so far about where cancer comes from, where it's going and how we might finally beat it. It's coming out in the UK on the 6th of August and in the US on the 29th of September and it's available now to pre-order from rebelcellbook.com and we'll have some excerpts coming up in a future episode of the podcast. But this time, we're going to look at a subject I explored in my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, epigenetics. It's one of the hottest and most misunderstood topics in genetics, and one that I have a deep love for, having done my PhD in genomic imprinting, a classic epigenetic phenomenon, a long time before it was cool. When I give public talks, I can almost guarantee that someone will ask a question along the lines of, ah, what about epigenetics? Well, what about it, indeed? In its simplest sense, epigenetics is the science of how genes get turned on and off. All the cells in your body, more or less, have the same set of 20,000 or so genes. This is your genome, a set of biological recipes that your cells use to make the molecules that keep them functioning and keep you alive. But all your cells are not the same, so all the genes can't be switched on all the time. Otherwise you'd look like some hideous blob of silly putty, and that would be awful. The nerve cells in your brain are using genes that make neurotransmitters and the receptors that receive them, while your liver cells are busy making digestive enzymes to break down your dinner. And cells also need to respond to changes in the world around them, keeping you healthy and stable under different conditions, as well as switching myriad genes on or off at the right time and in the right place to direct your growth from a single fertilised egg into a human being. The genetic instructions remain the same in every cell, but this additional layer of control over and above the A's, C's, T's and G's of the basic DNA code is known as epigenetic regulation. Epigenetic changes within our cells act as a kind of memory, enabling them to remember what they've been told and what they're doing. So a brain cell doesn't suddenly decide to stop transmitting nerve signals and start making digestive enzymes, for example. Some people think that these kinds of memories might not be restricted to the life of a single cell, but can be passed on as cells or even whole organisms reproduce. And it's this concept that has leaked into newspapers, seeped into medicine and got its fingers into scientific fields from psychology to sociology. There is breathless reporting of the burgeoning epigenetics revolution, exhorting us to pimp our genomes by drinking green tea or munching broccoli. In fact, it seems to me to be increasingly used in the same way that non-experts bandy around the term quantum when talking about physics, as a hand-waving non-explanation for mysterious things. Why is this child fatter, thinner, taller, cleverer, sicker than their parents? Ah, epigenetics! Why did this normal cell grow into a cancer? Ah, epigenetics. Why am I addicted to chocolate? 
epigenetics. So, what's it all about? Each type of cell in your body is doing its own particular job and using a specific suite of genes. Some of the genes that are switched on will be the same in all cells, known as housekeeping genes, while others vary depending on the cell type and what it's doing at any particular moment in time. These on and off settings aren't fixed. Genes can get activated or shut down during development as a foetus grows in the womb, depending on when and where they're needed. Throughout our lives, all sorts of genes are turned up or down in response to information coming in from the environment. Eating a big dinner? You need to switch on the genes that make enzymes to break down the food and shuttle it into your body. Overdone it in the sunshine? Quick! Activate the damage response genes to protect you from the damaging effects of the sun. That's what peeling sunburn is, by the way. Skin cells that have activated a program of suicide genes so they die rather than persisting, crippled and potentially cancerous in your body. This is fundamentally how the interaction of nature, our genes, and nurture, the environment, works. It's nothing particularly weird, and it's something that scientists have known about for decades. However, the word epigenetics has come to mean many things to many people. And for the pedants, the biggest issue is one of semantics. In its purest sense, the way that the coiner of the term, Conrad Waddington, described back in the 1940s, epigenetics is the branch of biology which studies the causal interactions between genes and their products which brings the phenotype into being. In other words, how your genes and the molecules they make work together to make you, you. What follows from this idea is the assumption that epigenetic information is somehow written into our genes by the environment and influences the way they work. And then there is the tantalising idea that these changes might be passed on down the generations, from parent to child, or even further. That's the stuff that has got the science journalists and the quantum peddlers most excited, but it's also least supported by evidence. Frustratingly, it must be epigenetic, has become a catch-all for we don't really understand this. So what do we know? Genes are short stretches of DNA, the twisted ladder of life, often used by lazy advertisers as shorthand for woo science. DNA itself is a molecule made up of four chemicals, bases, strung together millions of times in seemingly endless permutations. They're known by their initials A, C, T and G, short for adenine, cytosine, thymine and guanine, and it's the order of these letters in a gene that determines that particular molecular recipe. Each one of your cells contains a staggering 2.2 metres of DNA, comprising roughly 6 billion A's, C's, T's and G's. That's the same as 200 phone books. Furthermore, DNA doesn't writhe naked and free within our cells. It's wrapped around ball-shaped proteins called histones, and then coiled, supercoiled, crushed and squished into a structure in the middle of the cell, the nucleus, smaller than the head of a pin. Since the 1970s, scientists have discovered that the histone proteins packaging our DNA can be modified with tiny chemical tags, each of which is supposed to convey a particular meaning. 
Some are the biological equivalent of a no-entry sign, telling the gene-reading machinery of the cell to leave those genes alone. Others declare the underlying DNA open for business, so the genes in that region can be switched on. Then there's DNA methylation, tiny chemicals called methyl groups that are directly glued onto the letters in DNA at particular locations. Hundreds of research groups around the world have spent the past couple of decades mapping patterns of histone modification and DNA methylation in ever more detail around thousands of genes, monitoring how they change in response to various stimuli coming from inside and outside cells. Many, many papers have been published, and they are mostly very tedious. Every field, from cancer research to psychology, is busy detailing these so-called epigenetic modifications at their favourite genes. It's the biological equivalent of stamp collecting. There has been a disturbing fixation on mapping patterns of DNA methylation, on the assumption that finding these telltale tags on genes means that they are switched off. But is DNA methylation or histone modification a cause the actual thing that switches a gene on or off? Or is it just a consequence of other underlying processes at work? To draw an analogy, is it like the locked door of a shut-up shop? Or is it just the closed sign swinging against the window pane, a visible readout of the underlying situation? Most research shows that genes are activated by protein molecules called transcription factors, which sit on short stretches of DNA near genes and act as control switches to turn them on. Histone modifications may be important for locking in patterns of gene activity once the transcription factors have got them going, but there's still a lot we don't really understand about how it all works. The lack of a clear understanding of the link between epigenetic modifications and gene activity has allowed an almost cult-like field of misunderstanding to spring up. The idea that fiddling with the epigenetics can turn genes on or off has seeped into pop science and led to pseudoscientists like those New Age gurus telling us we can forge our genes with the fire of our wills or by eating enough broccoli. Epigenetics is invoked to explain every single biological phenomenon we don't yet understand. And one of the biggest mysteries is something known as transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. It's the concept underpinning all those headlines you read asking, was Darwin wrong? The idea that epigenetic stuff, rather than the underlying DNA code itself, can transmit information, traits or even diseases from one generation to the next. Transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is often held up as scientific heresy, akin to a modern version of French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck's idea 200 years ago that physical characteristics accumulated during life can be passed on from parent to child. Think of that burly blacksmith building up muscles over a lifetime and passing on both his trade and his frame to his sons. This was easily disproven by the legions of mice whose tails were chopped off by Lamarckian believers, only to produce offspring with full-length tails. But there is good evidence from experiments with fruit flies, nematode worms and plants, suggesting that this can happen to some extent, although not in the dramatic way that Lamarck thought. And, as we'll see later on, 
there is some intriguing evidence when it comes to mice. Things do get a lot more sketchy, however, when it comes to humans. There are a couple of famous examples of transgenerational inheritance, very few of which have been pinned down to a solid epigenetic explanation. The most famous, the Dutch Hunger Winter, dates back to September 1944 in Nazi-occupied Holland. Despite the offensive that followed the D-Day landings, the Allied powers failed to free most of the Netherlands in late 1944, and the Germans imposed a savage blockade on the remaining occupied territory. The resulting food shortages were desperate. At the peak of the famine, many people were surviving on two slices of bread and half a sugar beet a day, a ration of around 400 calories. Some described topping up this meagre diet with sliced tulip bulbs fried in engine oil or occasional squirts of artificial whipped cream. In May 1945, the Netherlands was liberated. The famine was severe but mercifully short. But because life and love continue in the hardest circumstances, some women in the famine-struck areas fell pregnant during the crisis or were in the earliest stages of pregnancy. Others were further along and some gave birth before the German blockade was lifted. By poring through the surprisingly detailed medical records of the time, researchers have been able to find these babies and follow them through life. Initially, everything seemed to be okay, although the mothers who were starved for the final few months of their pregnancy tended to have smaller babies. Children conceived during the later months of the famine, but whose mothers enjoyed a better diet for the end of their pregnancy, were born a normal weight. Later on in life, though, it started to become clear that not all was entirely well with these kids. They ended up more obese, with greater incidence of heart disease. They also aged more quickly, were more likely to die of cardiovascular problems and perhaps had increased odds of developing schizophrenia. Finally, there were tantalising hints that some of these problems may pass further down the generations, affecting the grandchildren of the original starved mothers. The big question now is, how does it work? Researchers have found differences in DNA methylation at important genes involved in fetal growth in the Dutch children who were starved in the womb. But this doesn't need to invoke any spooky transgenerational stuff. A fetus is still part of its mother, not a separate entity in a sealed box, and will switch genes on and off in response to signals coming from the outside world, i.e. mum. And because the germ cells that will become the eggs and sperm that create the next generation are laid down very early on in development, this also explains the impacts on the grandchildren of the Dutch mothers. This phenomenon is known as developmental programming. In the case of the hunger winter, the babies conceived during this time are sensing the lack of food in the environment and making changes in how they use the limited chemical building blocks provided by the mother's starvation diet. They're also modifying their gene activity to prepare them for a life of scarcity. Some people like to go further than the relatively simple idea of developmental programming, suggesting that extra information might be passing from one generation to the next through egg and sperm. 
However, it's broadly thought that epigenetic marks, DNA methylation or histone modification, get removed from germ cells, wiping the slate clean for the next generation. So, is this mechanism really at work? However, there have been a few intriguing papers over the last couple of years suggesting that tiny fragments of RNA, a chemical similar to DNA, hitching a ride in egg and sperm, might be transferring extra information from parent to child, or even further. More on this later. All fields of science are susceptible to fads, and people have been quick to jump on epigenetics as an explanation for all the mysteries of life that we haven't yet fully unravelled. But while it's important to get to the bottom of the mechanistic nitty-gritty about the exact genes and molecules involved, there's another angle that shouldn't be ignored. Although the impact of the Dutch hunger winter is measurable today, the effects aren't drastic. This is because the Netherlands is a wealthy country with plentiful food and good public healthcare, so the affected children can, to a certain extent, catch up. But similar studies in low- and middle-income countries tell a less positive story. Taken together, the evidence suggests that good nutrition and healthcare for women and girls, especially in early pregnancy and when trying to conceive, are vital to ensure the long-term health of everyone in society. It's not more epigenetics we need, but more equality. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. As the American scientist and writer Isaac Asimov is often quoted, the most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not Eureka, but that's funny. And this story starts from just such an unexpected observation. Back in the 1990s, Iranian-born geneticist Minu Rasul Zadigan noticed something strange when she was working on a project to create mice carrying an altered version of a gene called KIT, which encodes a protein that sits on the surface of cells and transmits signals telling particular genes to be switched on or off. It's got a range of jobs in the body, from distinguishing the germ cells in the early embryo that will later become egg and sperm, to controlling pigment in the skin and hair, and making red and white blood cells. According to the design of Minu's experiment, every mouse pup in a litter should have one active version of the gene, and one that was switched off. And the way she would spot these mice with a faulty copy... They all have little white fur gloves and socks on their paws, just like Mickey Mouse, with a white tip to their tails. But it was when Minu started breeding these Mickey Mouse mice together that things got strange. Kit is such an important gene that animals with two faulty copies can't survive. According to Mendel's Rules of Inheritance, breeding two mice that each carry one faulty copy and one normal copy of Kit should lead to a quarter of the embryos failing to develop, due to having got a faulty copy from each parent. Half should have inherited a single faulty Kit, along with the expected white gloves, socks and tail. 
and the rest should look completely normal and brown, as both their kit genes are functional. But this wasn't the case. Weirdly, almost every single mouse had white feet. Yet when Minu looked at their DNA, only the expected number of pups carried a faulty kit gene. The rest were completely genetically normal. I thought, this cannot be! It's not possible! Mental says it is not possible! She told me when I went to visit her lab at the University of Nice in the south of France. Since then, she has dedicated her research to trying to unravel this impossibility. To try and figure out what's going on, Minu kept on breeding the mice together, but things just got more and more weird. Crossing the impossible Mickey Mouse mice with two healthy kit genes with perfectly normal mice, the gloves vanished after a few generations. But if she kept crossing Mickeys together, things got even stranger. With every generation, the animals became more and more blotched with white, and some were even born completely white, even if they had two normal copies of Kit. This just shouldn't happen. So when Minu began to talk about her unusual findings at scientific conferences, most people dismissed her results as being simply too weird. And in the absence of knowing exactly what was underlying the strange phenomenon, it was little more than a curious observation. In search of an answer, Minu wondered whether more than DNA was being transmitted from parents to pups, which could somehow be switching kit off, even in animals inheriting two normal copies of the gene. The most obvious culprit was RNA, a kind of molecular photocopy produced when genes are read inside cells. Given that the effect worked whether the original Mickey Mouse parent was male or female, and given that eggs are packed with all kinds of protein and RNA goodies, making it hard to start unpicking what's going on, Minnie went for the easiest option to study – sperm. Sperm cells are tiny, barely more than a tightly compacted ball of DNA with a tail, so it's long been assumed that they contribute little more than their genes to the next generation. So. Minu took a closer look at the testicles of her Mickey Mouse mice using an electron microscope to spy on their sperm cells. To her surprise, there was plenty of RNA in there. But what was it doing? And how did it relate to the strange pattern of inheritance? To find out, she purified RNA from sperm taken from mice with one faulty copy of Kit. Then, using a tiny glass needle and very steady hands, she carefully injected it into genetically normal fertilised egg cells and replaced the manipulated eggs back in a mother's womb to grow. Pleasingly, they grew into Mickey Mouse pups, complete with white socks, gloves and tails. But there was an issue. While injecting RNA from Mickey Mouse mice always had this effect, very occasionally, she would see white-gloved pups emerging in control experiments using RNA from normal animals. This result led me to think there is something else going on. I wonder if maybe what's happening in these injections from normal mice is that there are some small fragment or degraded RNA made from the kit gene. And that led us to microRNA. MicroRNAs are another hot topic in genetics. 
Tiny fragments of RNA that carry out a seemingly endless number of roles in controlling genes. So what if the faulty version of the kit gene was actually making some strange microRNAs in sperm or eggs that were responsible for exerting the Mickey Mouse effect, which could occasionally be produced by accidentally shredding kit RNA from normal animals? To find out, Minu got hold of some microRNAs based on the kit gene and injected them into normal mouse embryos. Again, she saw the same thing. Mickey Mouse pups with their little socks and gloves. But while this is a cool story with some cute baby mice, it's still pretty strange, and many in the field didn't believe her results. They started to look a bit more closely, though, when she went and did it again. This second result was yet another accidental discovery. As part of her microRNA injection experiments, Minu ordered some random microRNAs, which were meant to have no similarity to any known gene, to use as a control. But while the eggs injected with one of these, microRNA24, didn't have white gloves or socks, there was something else strange about them. They are like super mice! Oh my god, they are bigger and they stand up much earlier on their feet. Straight away you can see it. By two weeks of age, you put a normal mouse on a little platform, they just walk, fall off, because they don't understand it. But these big ones, they look, they come back. So they are smarter as well. Minu took a closer look at the sequence of this mysterious microRNA24 and found it matched up with a gene called SOX9. But unlike the situation with the Mickey Mouse mice, where the microRNA switched the kit gene off, this microRNA seemed to be switching SOX9 on. And then she found a third example. Injecting microRNA matching a gene called CDK9 into genetically healthy fertilised eggs led to animals with larger hearts than normal, which beat unusually fast, similar to a human condition called cardiac hypertrophy. Every single week in the UK, 12 apparently fit and healthy young people drop dead from an undiagnosed heart condition. Maybe some of these tragic deaths are due to rogue fragments of CDK9 RNA that came along for the ride with a sperm during the earliest moments of life. There are many researchers who still don't believe Minu's work, but other scientists are starting to look more seriously at the role of RNA in transmitting information down the generations. Oliver Rando and his team at the University of Massachusetts are investigating the role of RNA in early development and have found that microRNAs coming along with sperm are essential for early development in mice. And it maybe looks like daddy mice might pass on the effects of an unhealthy diet to their offspring through tiny RNA fragments known as tRNAs. Maybe a certain component of complex metabolic diseases like diabetes and obesity, which are influenced by a seemingly impenetrable mix of environmental and genetic causes, might be down to transgenerational transmission of RNA. It's certainly an intriguing idea, and one that deserves more investigation. This all comes back to the idea of the embryo as a singularity, a unique point in time when an organism exists as just one single cell with one set of DNA. 
Any epigenetic alterations to these cells that can be copied and passed on as the cells divide and grow will create ripples that can last a lifetime, or even further if they don't get wiped out in the germ cells that will go on to make eggs and sperm. This is exactly the kind of idea that leads to those Darwin was wrong headlines that get geneticists so worked up. But in fact, Darwin was right about this too. Back in the 19th century, before anyone had come up with the concept of genes, Charles Darwin's personal favourite hypothesis of heredity was the concept of gemmules, small particles that travel around in the bloodstream of an animal, gathering information about its characteristics. Then these gemmules combine in the embryo after fertilisation to create all the bits of the body in the combined image of its parents. Francis Galton, Darwin's brilliant but massively racist cousin, set about trying to prove him right by bleeding and breeding hundreds of rabbits in an ultimately fruitless search for these mysterious packages of genetic information. Of course, once people started to figure out the true nature of heredity, all this silly gemmule stuff went out of the window. But aren't these small fragments of RNA in eggs and sperm a bit like modern-day gemmules? Researchers have even discovered RNA fragments moving around the body in little packets called exosomes, which can be taken up by cells and influence gene activity. So maybe this is a way that the rest of our body can talk to eggs or sperm, passing messages on to the next generation. Although there's a long way to go to prove this actually happens in animals, let alone in humans, if the principle holds true, we're going to need a major rethink of our conventional understanding of genetics and heredity. Watch this space. The first story about epigenetics is adapted from a piece I wrote for Little Atoms, which you can find online by following the link for the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And you can read the full story of Minu and her Mickey Mouse mice, plus plenty more tales from the world of genes and genomes, in my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, available from all good and all evil bookshops. That's all for now. Next time we'll be exploring why some people are more susceptible to diseases than others. Yes, including COVID-19. And we'll ask whether the answer does lie in our genes. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo is designed by James Mayall. Audio production is by the wonderful Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.